Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anish Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about colorectal cancer with Dr. Ira Leeds. Dr. Leeds is an assistant professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Ahira, maybe we can start off by laying the groundwork. Tell us a little bit about colorectal cancer. How common is it? Um, How lethal is it? How many people get it? I'd be happy to. So colorectal cancer is one of the most common cancers out there worldwide. It's the third most common cancer. Uh, Among working age individuals, it's the second most common cancer. Uh, And concerningly, it's also the second most lethal cancer by number of total cancer deaths. The the good news on the colon cancer side of things is that early detection has survival rates of over 90%, uh, whereas late uh, uh, detection has survival rates of 15%. So it really gives us an important urgency in the cancer care community to identify individuals with colon cancer and and precancerous lesions early because the survival difference is significant. To put it in kind of very real terms, one in 20 individuals with colorectal cancer, uh, excuse me, one in, one in 20 individuals uh, uh, in their lifetimes will have colorectal cancer. Uh, and so it's something where all of us probably know someone or will know someone uh, or have been affected by colorectal cancer individually. So it has a special meaning to me as it does for many individuals on that, on that aspect as well. Yeah. And, and speaking of early detection, uh, you know, tell us a little bit more about the, the screening guidelines. I understand that those have changed recently so that younger people um, now are being recommended to get colorectal screening. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. The screening guidelines continue to evolve. Uh, for many, many years, the age of 50 was the magical number where everyone should be lining up to get colonoscopies or alternatives to colonoscopies for their colorectal cancer screening. Many, if not almost all uh, societies that provide guidelines on this topic have moved to a 45 as the new age when people should start screening for colorectal cancer. That's for average risk individuals. So there's a number of individuals, both with more rare diseases that predispose themselves to colorectal cancer, but also a particularly high-risk sociodemographic groups, for example, African-Americans, uh, who have earlier screening guidelines as well. Uh, interestingly, one of the other parts of the guidelines that's uh, always a discussion point when, when guidelines come up is how do you screen? Colonoscopy has been the gold standard for decades. Uh, colonoscopies require you to typically get a little bit of sedation, and it's a procedure where you have to take a bowel prep the night before. So it, it's certainly a bit of a burden on the average person to do. So there are alternatives to colonoscopies. There are a number of reasons why a colonoscopy is arguably better for people that are able to adhere to the schedule, but the guidelines do really try to balance the burden of screening along with the benefits of screening. So, so let's talk a little bit about uh, a few things that you kind of touched on tangentially. So the first point is that screening is now being recommended at 45 rather than 50. Is that because the demographics of colon cancer are trending towards younger populations? 
Um, is is that the case? And and can you tell us a little bit more about who gets colon cancer in terms of the age demographic? So the the trends in colorectal cancer are are at the very least interesting and potentially concerning in many ways. Um, so the the new onsets of new onset of colon cancer is actually declining nationwide. The overall rate of colorectal cancer in the United States is declining. And, and also favorably, the mortality rate from colorectal cancer is declining. And we attribute those overall trends to fairly good adherence to colonoscopy and, and colonoscopy alternative screening schedules. Um, in, in older individuals that are getting good colonoscopies and the adherence to that currently is about 60 to 70% of people that are supposed to be getting them uh, on time. The, the, the risk of colorectal cancer occurring in those patients seems to be declining, and we attribute that to that better screening. The concerning part is that in young people, which the way it is defined is 20 to 49 years old, the rate of colorectal cancer is increasing. Uh, and that is concerning, not just because that's a patient population that historically has not been screened and, and one and the major reason why the guidelines were changed to 45, but that we also don't know why the rate of colorectal cancer uh, incidence is occurring more frequently in that younger population. So for those of us that think about this every day, it's relatively easy to agree that the rate, the screening guidelines should be lowered to younger ages and 45 is where it is now. And uh, in, in a completely unofficial uh, um, role, I would not be surprised if those guidelines potentially got even earlier in, in future years. Uh, but we don't know at all why there is a higher rate of colorectal cancer in that population. Hmm. The other thing that you mentioned was that these guidelines are for average risk people and that there are a number of things that increase a person's risk of developing colorectal cancer. So you mentioned certain demographic groups such as African-Americans. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some of the conditions, um, genetic conditions, other predisposing factors um, that increase a person's risk and whether those people should be screened even earlier than the 45-year-old guideline. When we think about risk factors, I always try to break them down into what I call non-modifiable versus modifiable risk factors. So non-modifiable risk factors are the risk factors that an individual has an increased risk based on compared to the average population. But at the same time, there isn't a lot that could be done about that other than changing a, a screening schedule to suit that increased risk, which is modifiable are things that we really spend a lot of time talking to patients about because those are risk factors that if certain behaviors are changed, may actually um, reduce their risk. Uh, increasing age is probably the one that's most frequently cited as a non-modifiable risk factor. We can never, we cannot get younger over time, and we need to recognize that as we get older, we do have an increased risk of colorectal cancer, which is why screening uh, continues after that first episode of colonoscopy uh, at the originally at the age of fifty and now forty-five. Family history and personal history are both incredibly important for screening guidelines. Uh, almost all the screening guidelines have a carve-out for patients who have early-onset colon cancer in a family member. And most of the guidelines say that an individual should start their own personal screening 10 years before the, uh, the age of onset in colon cancer in a first-degree relative. The thinking there being is that there is this idea that is, is widely accepted that most colorectal cancer comes from 
polyps that form in the colon, which is from the natural turnover of the, the surface of the, uh, of the colon. And so those polyps then over time have more and more turnover of cells and those cells get increasingly cancer-like. And as that occurs in about a, a, anywhere between a five and 10 year progression cycle, you can have what was a non-cancerous polyp turn into a cancer. So that's where this thought that if you start 10 years before a primary relative who had colon cancer, uh, you should be able to identify that at the precancerous stage and address it by removal with colonoscopy. There is also a personal history if certain patients have been exposed to, to various environmental factors or to cancerous, uh, excuse me, um, what we call uh, teratogenic agents or cancer-causing agents. That would be another reason to screen them earlier. And then there are relatively rare diseases, particularly inherited syndromes like Lynch, Lynch syndrome or familial adenomatous polyposis. These are conditions where an individual typically has numerous patient, uh, excuse me, numerous family members who have already had colon cancer or related cancers. And because of that increased risk, there are very well uh, early uh, screening guidelines for those particular patient groups. Those diseases uh, and inherited syndromes are relatively rare. And typically patients are getting passed on from family member to family member in terms of, oh, well, I started screening earlier than average because of this and, and you should too. And then and to talk about, about the, I'm sorry. Yeah, ahead. no, I was, I, I think we were both going to the same place. Tell us about the modifiable risk factors. So modifiable risk factors are incredibly important because this is where a patient's own agency has something they can do to reduce their risk moving forward. There are things that we oftentimes don't like to hear about when we are patients ourselves because it's, it does typically involve behavior change. But, you know, I really try to have patients wrap their heads around that you can essentially eliminate your increased risk if you do these uh, changes in behavior early enough on in the exposure cycle. And the, modifiable, the modifiable risk factors that we think about most are alcohol use, tobacco smoking, uh, being overweight or obese. Uh, and then the, the more controversial area are there dietary changes that one can do in addition to um, simple weight loss that's related to the obesity. So for example, this evidence is still evolving. We don't know for sure, but things like high fiber diets, reducing uh, complex artificial sugars and so forth may have an improvement on one's risk factors for colon cancer, but we don't know for that last point. The other one that's I, I would controversially put in the modifiable risk factor group is all is race. Obviously a patient can't change their race, but I think at the society level, we have to ask if whether or not the fact that African-Americans in particular have an incredibly higher rate of colorectal cancer than the average population. Is that because of something genetic? And the data suggests that that's probably not the case. The data suggests that the risk of increased colon cancer in certain races is likely due to socioeconomic factors and access issues to care. So I think as a, as a society and also as a, as a group of physicians and healthcare providers, we need to think seriously how we're making sure that race is acknowledged in our care of patients because there are increased risks that we likely could modify with improved access to care and addressing both social determinants of health as well as biomedical risk factors. Yeah. A um, couple of pointed questions, I guess. Uh, the first is, in terms of gender, is there a difference in colorectal incidence? 
the the relationship to gender and colorectal cancer has more to do with where the cancers occur in the colon. Uh, and this is a complex issue that we can probably come back to if, if we have time. But colorectal cancer occurs in three general places, right, uh, the right side of the colon, the left side of the colon, and the rectum. These are very different areas in terms of how they are handled from a surgeon standpoint, which is why um, it's, it's really relevant. Uh, and in terms to go to your direct question, the gender differences between the various anatomic sites varies as well. We don't really understand why, and it's an area of open investigation, but it does seem to color the, where these uh, cancers occur, and therefore genders seem to have differences in, in treatment strategies because of where the uh, sites of disease are. So, so women have more colon cancers on one side of the colon than men? Correct, the right side. Interesting. Uh, second question. What about inflammatory bowel disease? Does that increase your risk of, of colorectal cancer? And if so, are we seeing more inflammatory bowel disease in younger people, which might uh, give us a clue as to one potential etiologic factor for younger onset? So inflammatory bowel disease absolutely increases your risk for colorectal cancer. Um, the uh, screening guidelines for both patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis specifically uh, target those groups for early onset colonoscopies, partially to evaluate their inflammatory bowel disease, but, but also to evaluate uh, for the early uh, development of colorectal cancer. We talk a lot of, in that population about dysplasia. Dysplasia is what cells look like under a microscope when they're headed towards potentially being a cancer. And so uh, those patients get routine, regular biopsies to evaluate for dysplasia as a sign that that would be the case. And in that patient population, the, the recommendations in terms of what you do with that are changing. But the Historical recommendations have been to move towards early surgical intervention to remove uh, disease portions of the colon uh, because of their increased cancer risk. Uh, you bring up an interesting point about, about inflammatory bowel disease incidence and early onset of colon cancers. And I think I would kind of capture that more broadly. What, what One of the leading theories around why we have increased colorectal cancer in younger populations is the inflammatory burden that the colon is seeing younger in life. And there's a lot of reasons why that may be the case. The question is, has been raised, is it a matter of psychosocial stress in modern society? Is it a matter of that a lot of the artificial sugars and ingredients that are in food, do they carry a more, um, they, 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 have a, they have an established higher inflammatory load that's seen by the body? And is that in somehow creating more inflammation in the colon, more inflammation begets this dysplasia that we talked about, and does that lead to cancer? These theories are, are out there. They're, uh, well, they're often discussed, and they have good biology that supports them. We just haven't made the sort of missing link connection to the clinical evidence yet of is that what's actually causing this or not. Interesting. Well, we're going to pick up the conversation right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about the surgical care of colorectal cancer with my guest, Dr. Ira Leeds. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital, where integrative medicine services help patients navigate physical, mental, and spiritual wellness during and after cancer therapy. To learn more, visit YaleCancerCenter.org slash integrative. 
The American Cancer Society estimates that more than 65,000 Americans will be diagnosed with head and neck cancer this year, making up about 4% of all cancers diagnosed. When detected early, however, head and neck cancers are easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. Yale Cancer Center was recently awarded grants from the National Institutes of Health to fund the Yale Head and Neck Cancer Specialized Program of Research Excellence, or SPORE, to address critical barriers to treatment of head and neck squamous cell carcinoma due to resistance to immune, DNA-damaging, and targeted therapy. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Ira Leeds. We're learning about the surgical care of patients with colorectal cancer. And before the break, Ira, we spent a lot of time talking about kind of what causes uh, colon cancer, or at least what are some of the risk factors and what are the factors that lead to colon cancer, particularly occurring at a younger age, so that guidelines have now changed to get colonoscopies earlier. One thing I want to talk about just before we get into the management of colorectal cancer is the type of screening. You mentioned this briefly before the break in terms of colonoscopy versus alternatives. Can you flesh that out a little bit for us? So clearly nobody is, you know, chomping at the bit saying, oh, sign me up. I'd love to get a prep and have a tube put up my rear bottom end um, so that you can look at my colon. But we know that colonoscopy is a great test to find colorectal cancer early and allows one to actually remove potentially precancerous polyps. But if you're not terribly enthused about having a colonoscopy, how good are the alternatives and do you recommend them? That's a loaded question when it's all said and done, but we'll try to break it up here into into, um, bite-sized pieces. So I think to to go to colonoscopy first, the the two biggest values to colonoscopy for me are, are the following. The first is that colonoscopy has been shown to be able to identify lesions typically earlier than a lot of the alternatives out there. And the reason being is that colonoscopy can identify both truly benign, what I, so non-cancerous lesions, it can, it can identify precancerous lesions, and it can identify cancer. And why that's valuable is that it by getting your regular screening colonoscopy, it kind of gives a time-lapse image of what's happening in your colon, which I think is valuable if something were to ever develop kind of what somebody saw before. The second reason why colonoscopy is so valuable is that you're in there. You can already do what you need to do oftentimes for these precancerous lesions. With almost every other screening test, it's going to basically stratify a patient to a low risk, meaning there was nothing detected on the test, or a high risk group, which means that the test was abnormal and therefore the patient needs a colonoscopy. So a lot of these, even the the, the best non-colonoscopy screening modalities are still routing folks to colonoscopy when they have an abnormal test. So there is a, a little bit of this question of, you know, if if there's so much that can be gleaned from a colonoscopy to begin with, should we be putting everyone through the colonoscopy round? And then as I mentioned before, the 
the biggest argument against that is that colonoscopy for some folks is has an undue burden, both in terms of pleasantness, but also in terms of, of work loss and so forth. So if you can do, for example, a stool test that you can do in your home at one evening when you've got the time to do it and send it off for analysis. And that if it's negative, then you're done. You have no further burden on your day-to-day life to get your results you need to, to go back to being an average risk individual with no further colonoscopy needs. So I think where it, it, the, both the, the, um, um, the clearance for these tests, in other words, what they're allowed to, to proclaim to be, and also where they really do have a sweet spot is the average risk individual who's never had any abnormal findings on a prior colonoscopy and does not have the high risk family features that we talked about before. Those individuals, if interested in pursuing a non-invasive test like a colonoscopy, have been shown to have equal benefit from one of the more advanced tests out there. It's basically a test that you give a stool sample and it uses a variety of assays or laboratory tests done on that sample to look for both cancerous DNA in the stool, as well as a signature of what a bleeding lesion in your colon might be like, which is one of the uh, microbleed is one of the uh, hallmarks for a precancer or early cancer in the colon. So that's what it's detecting. And it's been shown to have a very good detection rate. Uh, and so if that's normal, then we can confidently say that patient does not need a colonoscopy if they have no other high risk features. There are a number of different options that are listed in the guidelines, but those two are probably the most common recommended today. The biggest drawback to the uh, stool test that I mentioned is that it, it is quite expensive, uh, depending on insurance uh, reimbursements and so forth. So uh, it's not um, the, the, big, the biggest benefit to it is the is the burden of going to get a colonoscopy more so than uh, anything else in regards to resource use for it. Cool. So let's suppose you went for your colonoscopy and a lesion was found, a polyp was found and biopsied, and it turns out that it is a cancer. Can you help us to understand a little bit more about how you know whether this is kind of a, a good cancer where your colonoscopy has has gotten it and you don't need anything further versus a not so good cancer where there might actually be a need for you to see a colorectal surgeon and have more therapy done? So there's a couple key things that you need to know when you, as a surgeon when you're getting given a biopsy report from a colonoscopy. The things that we think about the most are for a true cancer is something called TNM staging or tumor nodes and metastasis staging. The T or the tumor is what is happening at the microscopic level in terms of local invasion. Where is the, the thing that was biopsied? Where is it going? Is it in just the, the very first few level layers of cells of the colon? Is it invading through the colon? Is it invading into other structures? N is nodes or are there, there are nodes, lymph nodes that are basically the first sign that a colon cancer has been getting to spread beyond the original tumor. And then finally is M or metastases. And that means they're spread of the cancer beyond the colon into, into other organs of the body, most commonly the liver or the lungs. So for colon cancer that's been diagnosed as colon cancer on colonoscopy, it is important to get a complete scan of the body, of this, particularly of the chest and the, and the abdomen, to make sure that you don't have any far-ranging metastases or, or tumor spread. Um, the, the second issue then is, where does it look locally? And that's where sometimes the biopsy alone can do that. 
if the biopsy comes back as cancer and the entire polyp was not removed with that biopsy, then that's kind of the first step that someone needs to go back and see if that can be removed endoscopically. Sometimes it's very obvious from the original colonoscopic exam that it's not going to be removed locally. But if it's on a stalk, if it's kind of dangling into the colon, sometimes those are, are very good candidates for local removal with the colonoscope. If that's done and on the micro, the microscopic evaluation of that specimen, you can say clearly that here's the cut edge of where we took this, this tumor off, this polyp off, uh, and there is no cancer at that. And then we looked at the individual cancer cells in the, the bulk of the polyp, and we can see that they have certain features that are favorable, then that may be all that patient needs. On the flip side, if there is tumor invasion, if there's high concerning features of the polyp in terms of what it looks like under the microscope, then that's something where a segment of the colon needs to be removed. And that would require a, typically in, in, in 2021, it would typically require minimally invasive surgery to remove a segment of the colon and the nodal bundle that's attached to it to get that end staging. For very early tumors, the risk of an end spread, meaning a nodal spread, is so low that for those very early tumors that we just took off and said we're done, those don't need that nodal bundle, which is where that justification comes from. So speaking of, of burden, um, if you had a very small cancer such that it was just in a polyp, do those patients still need the scans of their chest and their abdomen to look for distant metastases? One would think that if the nodal burden is low, then the distant metastases burden should also be very low. I think it's certainly a consideration. This is one of those uh, particularly controversial points and in, in staging guidelines that has, is up for discussion. And I think shared decision-making does come into it. This is something that either that a colorectal surgeon should probably involve with to talk to the patient about one-on-one -on -one because there are very small risks uh, of spread and that needs to be discussed um, uh, with the patient individually because those guidelines are in flux. And, and then if I can go back for one second, I think, you know, we, we talked a lot about the kind of, you see a polyp in the colon, just to kind of clarify, one of the tricky parts about the anatomic specificity that we mentioned earlier was that colon cancer can be dealt with in more or less the way that we just discussed, whereas rectal cancer is a different bird. Rectal cancer does make up about 30% of all colorectal cancer. And the decision-making around how to address those tumors does uh, differ. Okay. Tell us more about that. How does it differ? So the interesting thing with rectal cancer is biologically, it's very similar to colon cancer. It looks very the same under the microscope, and it's the same kind of cell story that, that created those cancers in the first place. Where rectal cancer does differ is that it's anatomically fixed, meaning the rectum is fixed in the pelvis, whereas the colon flops around. It's an incredibly um, powerful difference that becomes more so every day because we realize that we have more modalities or, or options for therapy that we can use for rectal cancer because of its anatomically fixed position. What this means in 2021 is that many, many rectal cancers need chemotherapy and radiation up front, which is entirely different than colon cancer, which if anything only gets those options for therapy after the original tumor is removed. Rectal cancer has been shown that we it seems to do better if we give those modalities up front and then follow with surgery after a considerable lead-in period of oftentimes three to six months of chemoradiation therapy. So, you know, this brings up an interesting point. Oftentimes here on the show, we, we talk about multidisciplinary care and we talk about personalized therapy. 
So how do you decide which patients need chemotherapy, which patients need radiation, which patients do well with surgery alone? It, the multidisciplinary point that you mentioned is critical. It's getting increasingly complicated, particularly with advanced disease. It's very hard to make these decisions without a colorectal surgeon, a medical oncologist, and a number of other supporting physicians from radiology, pathology, uh, interventional radiology, all getting together to, to talk about what's the best course of action. Um, there are a couple sort of easier points to make here. I think that for colon cancer, that's early stage in the colon and not the rectum. Uh, that's typically a surgery first approach in most cases. For things that are in that for for rectal cancer as well as advanced colon cancer, it really does require uh, everyone in the room to have that conversation about a patient and ultimately with a patient uh, to see what's the best first line approach. Dr. Ira Leeds is an assistant professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital and AstraZeneca.